0: Welcome to the Dear Rochester Retire Well podcast with David Pulsini from Six Point Financial Partners. In this podcast, find your path towards a brighter financial future with David as your guide as he helps individuals, educators, and healthcare professionals explore ways they can build wealth while minimizing risk using a multifaceted, comprehensive approach to personal finance. Are you ready to take the first step towards a brighter financial tomorrow? Let's get started.
1: We're going to skip the introduction today and get right into it. We had Ken on our last episode to go over a basic outline of Medicaid planning, or many of us could call it long-term care planning or even nursing home planning, although technically that's not accurate. We'll get into that. Ken, it was a huge hit, and I also quickly realized you and I could go on for days about this type of planning. So I wanted to get you back on for what you called Medicaid 201, which I love. Uh, it'll keep us on in line and on track and it's great to have you back we appreciate your time let us just start with this And, and we left off the last time and i think this leads right into what you would call eligibility rules so what is an eligibility rule what does that mean and then if we could just get into some examples that would be great
2: Right. perfect thanks dave happy to be back and share some of this and i hope to help some folks Uh, out there the context guys first the context is uh, we've got a crisis we've got a $500 a day bill coming about $15,000 a month a lot of folks thinks think health insurance covers it a lot of folks think medicare covers it maybe there's some kind of veterans benefit most folks know none of those things uh, are going to help pay for this $500 a day bill so you've got either private pay or medicaid Private base sounds like a lot of fun, right? Certainly might need to do that for some time in order to balance the interests of the nursing home and get in the right care at the right place. But ultimately you're going to want to understand and perhaps even apply for the medic or Medicaid to cover those costs. And so it becomes critically important to understand the basic Medicaid eligibility rules. There are what I call three steps, right? Three hoops to jump through. The way I phrase it is, Don't bother going to the second one until you know you've accomplished the first, until Medicaid would approve you under the first step. Then the second step and the third step, and then hopefully Medicaid would be approved and they'd cover that $500 bill. So think of it that way, three steps. The first one is assets, the second one is income, and the third one is gifting. Everything in Medicaid, I think, could come down to those three things, those three steps in order, assets, income, gifting. Let's assume for a moment we have a married couple. I need to know, Medicaid will ask, what are the applicant spouse's assets? That's the person who's in some form of crisis of care and probably living in a long-term care setting. That's the applicant spouse. Versus the community spouse, that's the spouse living in their own private residence in the community, right? First step, assets. Medicaid will ask, what are the applicant spouse's assets? and what are the community spouse's assets. So we're trying to recategorize what they own and putting in a, two different groups, okay? applicant's assets and the community spouse's assets. Applicants only allowed to have I'm using round numbers here. These numbers change slightly every January, okay? These are the 2021 rules as they were just issued a few months ago. Applicant spouse allowed to have $16,000 of cash. Applicant spouse allowed to have life insurance with a face value of fifteen hundred or less, I said face value, not cash or debt. Allowed to have the personal property, clothing, books, belongings. Allowed to have a prepaid irrevocable in the form of an irrevocable pre-need funeral account with a funeral home. And I have this interesting thing called an intent to return home, and that can be subjective. I didn't say they're allowed to own a home; that it would be protected for their heirs quite yet, but they can have this thing called an intent to return home. So Medicaid will never take your home, even if only subjectively you can return to it. If you objectively cannot, still won't take it while you're alive, but they might take it from your heirs. So long story short, applicant spouse, $16,000 of cash, and this thing called an intent to return home. That's not that much, right? But what about the community spouse? Community spouse, $75,000. The rules aren't quite that straightforward, but let's just go with that today. The community spouse can have, of course, their personal property. They can have a home, one home, used as the residence, up to $906,000 of equity. That's a lot of planning that can be done in that regard. We'll come back to this maybe in the next session, but I call that upscale downsize. We do that a couple of times a year. Upscale the house, but downsize at the same time. They can also, with the community spouse, have an automobile and also a prepaid, irrevocable, pre-need funeral account. So long story short, jump all, jumble all this together. There can be a house, there can be a car, there can be about $100,000 of cash. In terms of assets, Dave, that's what they're allowed to have. A house, a car, $100,000 of cash. So, so I two, 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 questions two questions on this mm-hmm.
1: The first one is, how, how much does that change every year? So the,
2: you said 2021 is $16,000? Right, so for roughly the last 14, 15 years, those numbers have changed just slightly, a couple hundred dollars, not significantly. There was a dramatic change in 2006 and some people think that there's going to be another dramatic change coming, who knows when, but they change only slightly every January. So just to bring us back to the eligibility rules, what we wanna do is ask Medicaid to cover that $500 a day bill. How do we get that? Well, we have to be eligible. First prong, first step, assets. If they have more than one home, more than $100,000 of cash, more than one car, you know, then they've probably got exposed assets. That's the way Medicaid speaks. We've got exempt assets, what they're allowed to have, and then we got exposed assets. So our first job together with clients is to step through this asset analysis and define what is exposed, because that leads later on down the line to whether or not we can or should be proactive. Proactive with what? Doing something with the exposed assets. We would never be proactive with exempt assets. That wouldn't make any sense, right? So got to step through this process. All right, let's say that we can judge we're below those thresholds. So then we pass step one. Let's move on to step two then, basic eligibility rules. Income is the second step. Now, there's not really much you can do here. The income rules are what they are. And it basically defines or determines what that couple, the married couple, would have to spend every month. They call it an income spend down towards the cost of their care. It's like an algorithm. You know, it's a math formula. Think of it as a copay. It's not exactly a copay, but you got a $15,000 bill. You're below the asset thresholds so you you pass prong one or the first step. But step two tells you, well, okay, we'll, we'll cover the $15,000 bill provided you pay X amount, $2,000 a month, for instance, towards the cost of care. That is generated by that number calculated by your monthly recurring income. And just like with assets, you have to separate out what is the applicant spouse's regular recurring monthly income and what is the community spouse's regular recurring monthly income. Applicant spouse first. They're allowed to keep $50 a month of their own income. I call that the haircut fund or the newspaper fund. (laughs) That's it, right? $50 a month is exempt of the applicant's income. They can also use their income to pay for their Medicare premiums, to pay for their monthly health insurance premiums. Again, Medicaid doesn't want to pay for everything if they don't have to. So they encourage you. They want you to. In fact, you need to, in fact. Continue to make sure you maintain your Medicare eligibility and your private health insurance if you have it. So they, allo- they allow you to deduct that too. Let's say we've got $2,000 a month of the income, just in my hypothetical, right? They keep the first of fi- uh, uh, Social Security income. Let's just keep it simple. Applicant spouse, $2,000 a month Social Security income. They get to keep $50. Let's say their health insurance and, and, and Medicare premiums are $200 a month, right? So let's, it's $250. That means they have $1,750 of exposed income. What do we do with that? Do they have to spend that on their care? Not yet. First, they can give that to their community spouse. This is all on paper, Dave. They're not literally giving a check to their yeah. spouse, right? Yep. If they give that $1,750, in my hypothetical, to the community spouse, sufficient to bring that community spouse up to $3,250 a month. Again, I'm rounding here. The numbers are looking different. If when the applicant spouse gives that excess income to the community spouse, the community spouse, when combined with their own income, their own social security, they're still less than that 3250 3250 then all of the income is exempt. There is no spend down obligation. There is, there is no exposed income. But let's say that community spouse already has $3,250 of their own income right? Or, or, or related, maybe they've got $3,000 a month of income so they could get, you know, $250 of their applicant spouse's exposed income, bringing them up to the $3,250. Then, then, this is just math, right? Then the applicant spouse would have to pay $1,500 a month, right? Because that would be their exposed. So, in other words, if the community spouse has near- or over that $3,250 a month, then they're gonna have an income spend down. And if it's the community spouse's own income, not this paper game where they're claiming their spouse's income, but their own income above $3,250, then they have to contribute 25% of their excess. So let's say that community spouse has $4,250 of their own income. They are $1,000 over they'd be required to contribute 25% or $250, not so bad. You know, and, and again, Dave, this is just a math form that's it's helpful for people to understand this point because it really affects their budgets. There's not all that much planning that can be done with this income step, step two of the three, but it's helpful for them to see, oh, okay, I would lose, if you will, you know, 2,000 or 1,500 or $2,700 a month, whatever the numbers work out as, from my monthly budget, so I'd have to plan for that. But then you put it in context, Dave, and you say, "Well, if it's a fifteen thousand dollars private pay bill, and your obligation is, you know, twenty five hundred dollars a month income spend down, that's not so bad." And then a light bulb goes off. People say, "Yes, absolutely, gratefully, this this works." You know?
1: Yeah.
2: That's step two. Step three is the tough one. So. Step one, just to repeat, assets, pretty straightforward. There's actually some nuance about retirement accounts. We're going to get into that in a moment. Mm -hmm. But step one, pretty straightforward. You're allowed to have certain assets. You're not allowed to have others and then they're exposed and should we do something with them or do you have to spend down? Step two, you know, I know there's a lot of math there. I tried to get through it, but it is fairly straightforward. You just follow a formula and what is, it calculates the income spend down obligation. It is what it is. Step three, gifting. That's the complicated one. That's really a central point of our conversation today. It has to do with what everybody's at least heard a little bit about, of that look-back period. So even if this married couple pass those first two steps and they're thinking, oh, good, finally some good news. Medicaid's going to come and pay, right? And maybe I got this income obligation. Uh Uh-uh, not yet. Not yet at all. The, that couple have the burden of proof. They need to prove to Medicaid, it is their obligation to prove to Medicaid that they did not make any disqualifying gifts in the preceding 60 months. That's five years. It's hard to do that because we don't have crystal balls. We don't know when that five year clock's going to start. Right. right? We don't know when that crisis of care is going to happen. But that's the way to think about this that you might be below the asset threshold, you might understand the income obligation rules and be willing to pay that monthly copay, as I call it, and you're still ineligible until either A, you prove, and I'll get into that in a little bit later today, until you prove that you didn't make any disqualifying gifts in the last 60 months, or you or that's not the case, you did in fact make some disqualifying gifts, Medicaid will calculate a penalty period as as a result, and you get through that penalty period. Only then, if either A, you prove you didn't make gifts, or B, you did, they assess a penalty, and you get through that, will then Medicaid pay and cover the bill. Let's talk about how they calculate this penalty period business, because it has an awful lot to do with whether or not you should consider being proactive or have no choice but to rely upon being reactive in your asset protection plan. Context, we need to build context, we need to paint a picture. So this is another number, this is how we calculate the penalty period, right? This is another number that changes slightly every January and every once in a while it actually goes down but typically it goes up a little bit and by a little bit I mean a couple hundred dollars, not thousands. So right now in the uh, Rochester region of New York State, I can't recall how many regions there are. Let's say there's eight or so regions in the state. Rochester would include Monroe County and all the surrounding counties. You know, the Western region would be Erie County and, and all the surrounding counties and so on. Every region has a slightly different rate. This is a number that Albany creates, so to speak. And the Rochester region's rate is $13,000. Again, I'm rounding to keep it simple, 13,000. Don't ask where the number comes from, just go with it, okay? So how does this gifting thing work? Well. Just at the moment you're below that asset threshold, just at the moment you, that's step one, just at the moment you understand step two and you're willing to pay that, and you are in a long-term care setting or applying for Medicaid in the community, that's a topic for another day, then you go back five years at that moment that you're quote-unquote otherwise eligible, having passed the first and second steps. And then you do what I call a forensic accounting. Now you don't need to hire a forensic accountant to do it, but it's a very specific kind of accounting that has to be done. You pull out all transactions that you think were gifts or that are unexplained. Medicaid has the ability to presume that an unexplained transaction was in fact a gift. So what'll happen is in my hypothetical, we find $26,000 of gifts, either actual gifts or unexplained transactions, right? $26,000 in the last 60 months, last five years. You divide that number, 26,000, by that goofy thing called the regional rate, 13,000, and that equals two, right? Two. This is how the penalty periods and look back work. Just at the moment, you are otherwise eligible. You're below the asset thresholds. You consent to an agree and will pay that income, monthly income amount. Then Medicaid at that moment will assess a two-month period of ineligibility if it turned out that you had $26,000 of gifts or unexplained transactions in the preceding 60 months. And that is really harsh for folks. If it's one or two months, maybe not so much, Dave, but if it's six, seven, eight months, 10 months, 12 months, well, you know. That's $15,000 a month, private pay, and they won't have the, the finances to pay for that. Because remember, they're only allowed to have about $100,000, right? Right, right. And it, it goes quickly. Those are smaller numbers. It, it, exactly right. So, you, you know, it's important to understand that our clients have the burden here to prove, right? Medicaid has presumptions on their side. It's very hard to get through this gifting Requirement and, and one other thing, I think it's helpful to think of it this way. It's not that you did anything illegal, certainly. It's not that you're denied Medicaid and definitely No, the way it actually works out is Medicaid will say, okay, you're approved for Medicaid you know, just two months from now. So you'll get a decision that says, you know, we'll start paying the bill in 60 something days. Makes sense? So oh, yeah. that, that is the gifting and the look back period and its implication. So if it's, you know, $10,000, $20,000, I'm not all that worried about it. But if it's $100,000 and we end up having what I call this big gap, gap in coverage, private pay until a certain point, and then you want Medicaid pay immediately, you want no gap. I think we might have talked about this during Medicaid 101 session yeah. together. If you get a giant penalty period, seven, eight months. Right, where you don't have the funds to privately pay and Medicaid isn't going to pay because you're ineligible, then we've got a real problem. And so again, I think I mentioned this last time, I view it as one of my primary jobs to help clients understand um, what, if any, gap in coverage they may face. That's a big deal. Yeah, before before we could ever get into what's proactive, what's reactive, should we protect assets? No, they got to understand are they going to have a gap in coverage because that is the worst case scenario.
1: Right. Yeah. It, it, Ken, I, I can't help but think about two clients that I have. They happen to be gentlemen. Sure. The listeners will appreciate this. Mid to late 80s. So their, their wives are in charge and have been giving them $10 a week. They don't know each other for like the last 40 years. So by going to a nursing home, they may actually get a raise to That's the $50 right. a month. <laughs>
2: That's right. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. I called that the haircut in the newspaper fund, and a lot of clients say, That's not enough to, for my haircuts. That's right. That's right.
1: It was in 1972, Ken. Right,
2: right. right. <laughs> they haven't gotten a raise from their spouse, but they'll appreciate this. Yeah. So, you know, the rules are I don't want to get too far from these eligibility rules yet. I, I want to just to help our listeners know where we're going, I want to talk about a little bit more about that asset test, because there's some interesting things about pre-tax accounts, Roth accounts, pension, Social Security, life insurance. I want to get into that. Perfect. And then I'd like to finish with a a brief conversation of what an application process looks like, because there's some really good pointers. Folks can just start, you know, changing the behavior a little bit about how they keep and maintain records. That might make their lives a heck of a lot easier. I'd like to talk about those those two things. But first, before we get off the eligibility rules, remember there's three steps, assets, income, gifting. That is true if you are a married couple, that is, as we just discussed, that is also true if you're a single individual, widowed, never married, divorced, whatever. If you're a single individual, you have three steps you have to get through, asset, income, and gifting, only they're much harsher, right? If you're a single individual, it's basically that same $16,000 amount, right? There is no exemption for house, there is no other than that intent to return home thing, it's a complicated thing we'll have to save for another day. But that's it. And again, there is no community spouse allowance of $3,250, you're a single individual. So, you know, the asset threshold is much lower uh, for a single individual, the income much less that can ultimately be protected. And it is the exact same gift uh, penalty period and penalty calculation uh, period of ineligibility, I should say, it's more accurate okay. than, than penalty period if you're a single individual. One final comment before we get off the eligibility rules thus far, Dave, we've really only talked about kind of Medicaid, skilled nursing home, or what's sometimes called chronic care Medicaid, living in a long-term care setting, Medicaid. There's a whole other kind of Medicaid, uh, community-based care, home care, adult daycare. Think of it as aid service in a home. You know, It's, it's more than that. It's an entirely different Medicaid program. You know, case by case, we could talk about that. Long story short, it works kind of the same way, asset, income, gifting. There is now, as of uh, October of 2020, a a look back period of 30 months, not 60, for community-based care. There hadn't been one up till that point in time. So long story short, single individual or married couple matters. What kind of Medicaid program are you applying for? Chronic long-term care or community? matters and then you'll run through these steps and maybe we determine at the end of the day you're eligible and that is when you know finally folks in crisis can get some real sense of relief i think dave if if you think it's a good idea let's talk a bit about different kinds of assets this helps start to paint a little bit deeper of a picture for folks to figure out you know can we be proactive should we be pro should we be proactive do we we have exposed assets absolutely I i think it's really helpful to know one incredibly important rule. Remember I said 16,000 of cash or about 100,000 total if you're a couple, 16,000 for an individual or 100,000 total is what you're allowed to have. Guess what that does not include? Retirement accounts. Retirement accounts, 401Ks, IRAs, Ross, provided there in what, what Medicaid calls payout status. That is not exactly this. It's similar to an RMD, required minimum distribution, that, you know, Dave, your clients would have been well-educated on as a financial advisor. You know, those are much more commonly understood. RMDs, you know, they got to get a certain amount. It's based on tax tables and life expectancies and such, right? right. Similar kind of concept, different language. Uh, Medicaid doesn't use the words RMD. They say payout status. I'll get into that in just a moment, but the big picture here is if you've got, let's say, a $500,000 IRA, and it is in payout status, then it's worth zero for the Medicaid asset test purpose. It's actually worthless to you. It's worth $500,000 of real dollars, right? right. but it does not count against that $100,000 limit if you're a married couple. It is not exposed. That sounds fantastic. The consequence, though, is the amount you're getting every month, the payout amount, if you will, is exposed and has to run through the income test that we just discussed. Think of it this way. It would be fundamentally unfair if that $500,000 account was treated as both an asset and then the income you got or the distributions you got from that account were also treated as an income. That would be double dipping. In the context of annuities we'll get into later today, Um, Medicaid definitely does do some double-dipping, but not with retirement accounts, right? So that's why retirement accounts or retirement funds get that favorable treatment. One quick point about payout status. a lot of litigation around this issue. It's been, it was unsettled for a long time, though it seems to be a bit more settled now. Long story short, if you are a married couple, Medicaid will treat, and you do have to be somewhat particular in the community that you're in, but Medicaid, generally speaking, will treat if you're receiving your uh, financial advisor or accountant's calculated RMD on your retirement account as a married couple, and as long as you get that paid on a monthly basis, Medicaid does monthly budgeting, right? On a monthly you don't. I don't want any of these annual lump sums, right? That they have an awful lot of the clients I'm sure, or most folks out there doing. Then. That's easy to calculate that Medicaid will accept that let's say it's a $24,000 a year RMD divided by 12 12 months a year that's 2000 a month so that retirement account itself is worth zero, but under that income test we just talked about you got to add in another $2,000. Again, Dave that's typically a pretty good bet for folks they'll take that result. Absolutely, what, what if it's not in payout status then they need to turn it. This was a meeting I had just this very morning. I'm not old enough yet. I'm not obligated under a particular new secure act that says age 72. So I don't need to do this, right? No, wrong. Those are tax rules. We're talking about Medicaid rules, totally different set of rules. Clients in their 60s that have to uh, invoke, if you will, the RMDs or put it in payout status for the express purpose of protecting the account when they otherwise wouldn't have or they didn't want to. You know, investment wise, tax wise, I would have liked to have waited until 72. They didn't have a choice. Right. right. Yep. Yep. That works for retirement. Oh, uh, sorry, one more point on that. One more. This is a deep nuance here. If you're a single individual, single individual, not married, then Medicaid will not accept the RMD as calculated by your financial advisor or accountant. They have a separate table, Social Security life expectancy tables for single individuals that they will mandate a single individual take in order for that retirement account to be considered payout status. And again, long story short, it's a, a much more compressed or much more accelerated schedule, meaning there are much more significant distributions and it will pay out in a much quicker fashion. So again not much planning you can do there just knowing these rules are very important yeah
1: expectations are set right so right yeah, let's get let's move on to the and let me tell you i i stayed quiet the whole time which is very difficult for me but every question that i had and the listeners will appreciate this you would answer in the next sentence so i just i just let your roll man and it, it was awesome and well, i hope I, I hope it's i hope it's helpful but I want I this to be entertaining it. too folks yeah. this is this is dry stuff come on you it's, know we've got to have fun it with it too but you know what, if we can do all this in 25 minutes, and what I learned from these podcasts and doing this on my end is if I'm a listener, and I don't do this for a living, this is just me, and there are some people that will still, quote, try to do it themselves. I have zero interest in knowing deep nuances and every law and the three pronged approach. And by the way, this leads right into our next question, how to even start this process? Like, yeah, I'm sure I could search it on the internet and say, what's step one, maybe I can get some forms, but when you're working with a professional, it's just going to be so much easier and convenient. Right. So again, when someone is doing, it is our next question. The last thing we wanted to talk about, we'll do this in two minutes. What does the application process look like? Right.
2: So it, it, it's, how do you start? It's impossible for me to do this job if they don't come in with an inventory of assets and income, The right? recurrence. That's kind of my first ask is, you know, and sometimes it's the kids, right? And dad's been quiet about the finances all whole life and why not? He should have been, it's his own private affairs, right? But now we need a whole, so that that in and of itself, Dave, can be a, a, a quite difficult uh, hurdle to overcome. But somebody comes in with an inventory, to uh, some degree of assets, and hopefully there's a good financial advisor involved who can be very helpful, you know, in, in the process of gathering information. But what we do is, and again, I try to go a little, I don't go into too much detail with the clients, but I've got this handout that explains these eligibility rules in written form, so you know, narrative form, so they can take it away with them. But I, I bake their their particular asset and income situation into these rules, and we come up with a conclusion. And 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 in the event this meeting or this this engagement is in a crisis situation where somebody in fact uh, is in a long term care setting or a hospital and about to be in a long term care setting. Well, then we've got to forget about being proactive. We, we can't proactively save assets. We've got to jump right into the application process. What is the application process? I, I show you, you, listeners can't see this, but I'm show, showing about a foot, foot and a half of space between my two hands. That is as thick as most applications are of paper. You have a, an incredible burden of proof that I mentioned earlier with regard to gifting. You have to provide basically an awful lot of paper to Medicaid. These are run through your county departments of social services in order to prove your eligibility, prove those three steps of, of the eligibility process. And you're always applying in Medicaid as of the first given day of a month. They can go backwards in time, three months. So there's some you know wiggle room around, involved in this. But the typical application process when we're involved can take several months. As you can imagine, sometimes people come with a great inventory, Dave, and an awful lot of financial information and 60 months of account statements and five years of tax returns at their fingertips.
0: But often they don't.
2: You know, Application process, I, I broadly call two different groups of documents. There's identity documents, and then there's financial documents. And I have many cases of folks, you know, born in the old country, right, the birth certificates in in, in Italian or Polish, and we got to prove their identity, you know, you got to find those security numbers, you got to get Medicare cards, and so uh, I think the wise client out there, when they're not in crisis, will take a brief look at this application checklist that I've developed, not because they're actually applying, God, let's hope they never apply, but well, where are my birth certificates? Do my kids know where my Medicare card is? What is it that I pay every month for health insurance? You know? Yeah. There's a lot of these identity documents. It's basic, basic practices you can start to make this process easier for your loved ones uh, should they actually need to apply someday. No, oh, that's
1: um, that's great. Me, and Ken, if somebody wanted that checklist, and we'll get to this a second, could, could they reach out to me yeah. and I can obviously put them in touch or you would be willing to send that out to them? That is
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, thank you, Dave. So, so, you kind of mentioned a theme. A good theme is, well, what can a client expect? How do they prepare? Um, it is, as I'm certain, the listeners can understand, this is complex stuff. So, I try. I, I've got. I try to have things in writing uh, that I can share ahead of time. to kind of explain some. In one case, in narrative form. In another, it's a checklist. You know, people like that. And so, yeah, I've got uh, I've got several handouts, but two in particular that I give to every client in, in, uh, in this situation, whether they're being proactive or not, just so that they can start learning the rules and start developing some good some good uh, processes, personal processes. Yeah. So, yes, uh, happy to share the application checklist. Happy to share my, my breakdown of eligibility rules. Okay. Uh, well, but as you might, you know, just one final point about this application mm-hmm. process. It, this is tough, not just because of this burden of proof and the 60 months of account statements and text, but the families are often in crisis. A loved one is in dire need of health care. Maybe they're in a hospital still and we're uncertain. Are they going home? And you've got a, a confusing and, and, and difficult pile of documents from the given long-term care setting to understand and there's liability there. And now they've got to worry about an application process that can often take several months to get through before you're at the point of actually applying. And by the way, there's the private costs, right? 15,000 a month every month till you get to the time of application. This is tough stuff. It really is. And we try to do a good job educating up front so people can be as prepared as they can. Yeah,
1: and I mean, this is great material candidates, hugely helpful, just so you know, and I I hope that people listen to this and at least take the first step in being proactive, which, by the way, we will definitely do a 301. We've done 101, 201. We'll do a 301, which we'll talk about proactive versus reactive. We'll talk about asset protection, which is we get this question all the time as financial advisors. Where where can we put our money where the nursing home or the long-term care, they they can't touch it? Or what are some maybe loopholes that are obviously legal that we can help people take care of those things? And we'll talk a lot more about maybe some individual examples. But for now, Ken, I know you're a busy guy. This is very helpful. I think it's a perfect amount that people can digest, by the way. It's not four hours of Medicaid planning, but maybe 25 to 30 minutes is perfect. And I am biased. I love planning. This was awesome. My team and I are meeting with clients every single day, much like you and your team. And these are real concerns and questions that people have. So we really appreciate it. For the listeners, you can always reach out to me anytime and I can put you in touch with Ken or Ken. Once again, we'll do this next time as well. And you kind of mentioned this in the last episode, but just remind the listeners on how they can get in touch with you directly. And that would be great. And then, then we'll end it here for the day.
2: Thank you, Dave. Sure, folks, it's Ken, K-E-N Kraus, K-R-A-U-S. My law firm is Evans Fox E V A N S F O X my number 585 787 7000 or you can always send me an email at k at evansfox.com. hope i can help
1: thanks again ken have a great day we appreciate thanks, it
0: thanks, Dave. thank you for listening to the dear rochester retire well podcast Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Six Point Financial Partners. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.
3: Content here is for illustrative and educational purposes only. It is not legal, tax, or individualized financial advice, nor is it a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any specific security or engage in any specific trading strategy. Results will vary. Past performance is no indication of future results or success. Market conditions change continuously. This commentary reflects the personal opinions, viewpoints, and analysis of Six Point Financial Partners. It does not necessarily represent those of RFG advisory, private client services, their clients, or their employees. This commentary should not be regarded as a description of advisory services provided by Six Point Financial Partners or RFG advisory, or performance returns of any client. The views reflected in the commentary are subject to change at any time without notice. Securities offered by Registered Representatives of Private Client Services, member FINRA SIPC. Advisory services offered by Investment Advisory Representatives of RFG Advisory, a registered investment advisor. Private Client Services, Six Point Financial Partners, and RFG Advisory are unaffiliated entities.